I know you're an advocate or a seeker of uh, an optimized daily experience, an optimized long longevity, ultimately optimized uh, health span. Uh, what you, you mentioned, maybe you're taking some medications. I'm curious in that realm, um, what you're currently personally taking or what you advocate. Sure. Or, yeah. Yeah. The, right now I'm running a detox. So I run a detox on myself once a quarter. Um, so I'm right so, now I'm working. Yeah. So um, it's different supplements skewed towards cleaning the liver. And then after I clean the liver, I work at using, um, um, it's called Cyto Detox. And what I do is uh, take that along with activated charcoal to bind it in the gut and poop it out. And I'll run that for three days, uh, take four days off, then run it for three days, take four days off, and then I'm done for a quarter. So at that point in time, I'm just making sure that I'm getting enough of the nutrients that I'm supposed to be getting. I'm also uh, in nutritional ketosis at the moment because toxins like to store in the fat. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll be in nutritional ketosis when I'm doing it. And I can always feel my testosterone levels kind of fall off. And how I know they fall off is my libido drops. Mm-hmm. So n- normally I'm like even like thinking around like, where's the girlfriend? And I can feel that kind of fall off for those few days when I'm detoxing. And so I'll run that for a couple of weeks. Then I come back to my normal routine, whatever that might be at the time, depending on what my goal is. Yeah. Do you think it's, speaking of detox, do you think it's possible right now without it being your full-time job to eat well, to eat true, truthfully in a, in a, we say clean, but like, that's such a vague term. Let's say, uh, you know, somewhere near toxin free or toxin minimal and like actually having high quality foods. It just seems so hard. It it is hard. Jay and I talk about this all the time because he's the same as me. We eat so clean all the time. So uh, I get uh, all my beef and lamb and chicken from a particular farmer here. You can see the difference in the meat. You can smell the difference. You can taste the difference. You you don't even need to season it. It, And especially that first uh, slaughter at the end of spring when they've been eating all that really fresh grass. Yeah. Oh my God, it tastes amazing. And um, you can tell the difference. If I go out and go to a restaurant and eat a steak, it's like, I can tell it's grain fed. It just doesn't taste the same. And it doesn't have the same consistency. It doesn't chew the same. So it's yeah. very difficult to eat clean. It's it to me. It's about you know how what can you do to minimize the impact because it's just everywhere. Yeah. That's yeah. why I still run a detox every couple of you know a uh, month or so. Go out and run a detox. Yeah, everyone loves to eat out. I'm just like I I would rather not eat out by by any possibility. Like if I can stay home, the quality of food is just so different. I can control what's going in. Like I'm importing the best quality, like all of those I can find the best, right. you know, like I'm, I'm trying to find the highest quality stuff I can, um, but just going out is always so disappointing and, and it's sad because like, it's nice to have that social uh, experience, but same time, like, man. Well, you know, what's good is the group that I run around in, they're all the conscious thing. like that. So yeah. they're very particular. We're going to a Mediterranean restaurant. We're going to this uh, Greek restaurant and we know that they're really good about the, the meats that they uh, acquire. So it's good to run in those kind of circles because it makes it easier. And I'll tell you, like, for example, Jay, he absolutely de- he despises fruit. And it's because he's like, oh, my God, all the chemicals, the pesticides, you can smell it, you can taste it. Mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, he's really sensitive to that stuff. And so am I. I'm very particular about that as to where I get those things, especially the things that I eat every day. I eat a ton of eggs. I mean, I ate a lot of eggs, a lot of beef, a lot of lamb, a lot of chicken, a lot of blueberries. So the things that I eat the most, um, I definitely try to find the cleanest sources possible because it's about, to me, it's about minimizing. I don't think you're ever going to get free of it. Yeah. And so Rob, think about how how much time conscious, I talk about like conscious energy, right? Like how much conscious time I'm investing in thinking about these things. It's your job. It's my job. It's Jay's job to optimize our body, optimize our life, to help other thousands of other people, millions, hopefully, eventually to optimize their lives. But how unrealistic is it for them to spend their entire conscious energy on like, where's my food going to come from? I don't have organic vegetables today. I'm not going to eat vegetables. You're just like, it's not realistic. So like there needs to be some type of, as you say, maybe detox protocol, uh, just some way to sit That's a great person. That's a great question, Ben. And, and there is an answer to it. So you need to focus your attention and energy on that one subject just for a small amount of time. Yeah. You really do. And once you got it figured out for your area. So like I hand all my clients, I have different nutrition manuals I use depending on what the problem is. So one in particular, my healing nutrition plan, which deals with like getting rid of toxins and it's a nutritional ketosis plan. And so I put people on the nutritional ketosis because it's the fastest way to help get rid of the toxins out of the body, plus also heal them. Ketosis is a great uh, a nutrition plan for healing. And then we can move into other things, right? We want to get flexible and stuff, Mediterranean, be able to use all kinds of different foods. But for the sake of healing, I'll, I'll throw them in nutritional ketosis. So what do we need to find for those meals, right? What do we need? So we need to find a good source of proteins. Usually in most areas you can find, and I'll do this when I go somewhere, I just Google uh, organic farmers and see what oh, pops up. And the meat is the amazing thing, I think. Yeah, it, it generally is. And then there's things you can have delivered to your house. I'm fortunate here, there's like seven farms within 10 minutes of my home. So I can rotate, um, you know, the different cattle farms that I use for, as sourcing. And then what foods are, do you really like that you eat a lot of? Avocados. Okay, where are you going to source those from? Right. And there's a huge difference. I don't know if you've ever been to South America. But if you see avocados in Colombia, they're like this, they're green. Yeah. They taste completely different than the stuff we see here in the United States. Yeah. They're not even the same thing. And they're not using all these pesticides. So, um, put you First, you just have to focus just for a little bit of time and get it down. Figure out what your eating window is. I eat between noon and six every day. I, Sundays are the days that I fast. It's already done. And I think for a lot of individuals, it's when your body isn't dependent on sugar anymore as its primary fuel source, yeah. right? It doesn't have to have that constant source of sugar so that you're not getting the hunger cravings, the headaches, the moodiness. Your day is so much more stable. Your thoughts really aren't on food. Yeah. They're not. I know I'm going to eat, eat, eat between noon and six. It's going to be 2,200 calories today. It's already taken care of. I already had lunch. I already had something midday. I know what dinner is going to look like. I already know that it's lamb and it's dandelion greens with um, Swiss chard and probably whatever other green is stuck in there. So like you like to say, meat and vegetables works miracles. Yeah, that's yeah, true. And meat, meat again, this may be only me, but I find meat tends to be the easy thing to find. It's like, well, what do I need with my meat? Is it just vegetables? I mean, I have to add avocado. I can, So I, I like to add in I like make big salads and all good quality olive oil and avocado and 
that's kind of it. And then eventually yeah. you're like, yeah, that's really all I eat. <laughs> and so yeah. for most people, they're like, that's it. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of Most people eat about the seven to nine foods their entire life. So it's yeah. usually not this wild variety. Now I travel so much between offices. I already know when I'm down in Naples, I'm going to my favorite restaurants. Different. Yeah. And I know what I'm going to eat and it's going to be a different food supply. But these places are, you know, they do a good job sourcing their food. And I can tell that it's clean. When it's not clean, I can smell it. I can taste it. And I'm just like turned off and just ugh, forget it. When I'm in uh, Chapel Hill, I know what restaurants I'm going to in Chapel Hill that do a good job sourcing their food and it's high quality food, right? And then, you know, I'm either at my sister's house or girlfriend or whatever I'm doing and they're all on board. They all eat healthy. So my network of friends, my circle of friends, I don't have to worry about, oh, hey, let's go to this burger joint and get this crappy food that kind of happen because they're already going to make good food choices as well. Yeah, that's a big thing that I advocate and it sounds like you do as well is um, most people eat, make bad decisions because they're, their body's either not producing energy very well, which is often either a toxicity issue or a mitochondrial issue, uh, or you know they've got some type of excessive amount of chronic stress that they need to learn how to manage and like remove the stress, learn to manage the stress. Um, they're inflamed. So again, removing the toxic burden, figuring out how to manage inflammation. Uh, and if you figure those things out, your decisions tend to make tend to be much easier to make. You're not going to make decisions based on, gosh, I just don't have enough energy today. I don't have enough energy to get through the day, so I'm going to go reach for something that's, you know, unhealthy and and, and nobody should be consuming. Yeah. I think in general, the message that comes out of this is like heal the heal the the, the root of the problem, heal the body, and the body just tends to to respond a little better. The likelihood of you choosing those crappy foods, you could still. Yeah. Uh, then but, it happens. Listen, yeah. it happens. See, I, I know what my trigger is. It's if I overwork myself to the point where I feel stressed, yeah. like especially if I had a bunch to do, like I had to go do some functional flight check on a plane yesterday and in the evening and I didn't get a chance to get my dinner in before that. And I got out of the plane and all of a sudden I'm like, man, I really want to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's just, uh, don't do it. Don't do it. You know? Yeah. I'm just recognizing that that's my stressor. It's like, that's the thing. It's like, okay, I'm just stressed. What I need is I need to go home. I need to drink a bunch of water. I need to cool it. You know, it's time to call it a day. I've done too much. Yeah. And so one of the things I advocate for people who have uh, hunger management issues is, well, first, you, you just eat a good meal first. And if you're still hungry, eat another good meal. Like I, I'll often have my guys who have appetite challenges to front load their calories in the day. And I'm like, your first meal could be at nine. Your second meal could be at 11. I don't care. If you eat two meals at nine and eleven, the likelihood of you eating again for the next four to six hours is basically zero. So, like, if you eat two good meals back to back, great, no problem. And then we're just gonna have a light dinner, and you're done. You know, so like people who have appetite problems, some or yeah, appetite control problems, sometimes just giving them like an excess of food, even if it's all good food, it seems to work, and they still end up being in the massive caloric deficit because you just put so much in early in the day, which I'm an advocate of, anyways. Uh, it tends they tend to eat less at dinner. That's usually where most people slip up is the you know the post seven p.m. snacking. And in my experience, I don't know if you've experienced the same, but just like front load your calories, get a bunch in before twelve. I know you're not not till after twelve, but if you were to consume those first two meals kind of close, like your body just feels just got enough. Like the thing about food again is much less. Yeah, I'll mix it up. Like I might run four or five days like that. Then on the yeah. sixth day, I'm going to eat. Uh, I might work out because I usually get up at five o'clock in the gym, 5.30, done by 6.30. And depending on what I do, if it's a lake day, I'm eating because it's just, it's too brutal, you know? Um, so I usually am very strategic about that. It's like if I'm hurting, if it's a lake day, I'm going to eat early in the morning because 
I'll usually backload mm-hmm. it. Or if I feel like I'm not going to get a work good workout, I'll preload. Sometimes intraload, you know, or afterload. Do all three. So it depends depends what I'm I'm doing. I find um, just like you talk about shifting their schedule like to more like a ten to four because they have a lot of insulin sensitivity issues at night, right? And generally at night, what it is, the hunger's coming because they need to go to bed. They're mm-hmm. tired. They're they're not a, their body's talking and it's throwing up flags and it's either thirst or it's time to go to bed. Generally, it's both. Drink some water. Now go to bed. Your body's telling you to go to bed. It's it's setting itself up to regenerate, recuperate, and restore. And a lot of people want to stay up 10, 30, 11, 11, 30, 12. And when your body says it's time to go, it's time to go to bed. And if those stress signals you know, are being misinterpreted, it's like, oh, I'm hungry. Let me eat, right? Your cortisol levels are low. No, no, no. It's time to go to bed. My My brother has that issue. He loves like at night to to head right to the pantry. It's like, dude, no, no, no. That's the worst thing you could do. You know, that's it's time to go to bed, not stay up and watch TV. Yeah, I think just acknowledging why that's the worst thing to do is is in most people it's going to disrupt your your deep sleep mostly. Right, mm-hmm. if you're eating late at night, quality of sleep falls off, and all of a sudden you wake up the next day feeling terrible. And one of the best things I've done is is I don't consume many calories three hours before bed. And often even more than that. And my deep sleep and, and REM sleep has just skyrocketed in the last couple of years since doing that. So that and growth hormone, right? So I want to optimize growth hormone secretion, yeah. especially if I'm using one of the third generation peptides. You know, so I want them, I want insulin levels, sugar levels as low as possible before they inject that peptide and go to bed. Uh, and then timing that, like, hey, let's get out of the rack five o'clock. Growth hormone levels are high, testosterone levels are high. Let's get to the gym. Let's exercise when those levels are up. Yeah. So you brought up peptides. I'd love to have you chat about like what which uh, growth hormone peptides are using. So my favorite tesamorelin, amorelin, you know, the third generation peptide, it, it just have so many of the unwanted side effects are just not problematic that we see with second generation. There are those individuals that do well with CJC1295 and ipamorelin. And, you know, the biggest problem I see with those is usually the that that rush or flush or the heart palpitations that they'll get with it. Um, sometimes you talk to them about it, they're okay with it. But listen, we have a third generation where you don't get those issues. Mm-hmm. So we can use that. Uh, it's FDA approved, which is also really great. So I don't have to worry about any issues there. And if those aren't tolerable, you know, replacing it with growth hormone. And I use a lot of growth hormone. We do a lot of stimulation testing to take a look and see if the axis is functional because Sometimes if that axis just isn't generating growth hormone and, you know, we'll do a stimulation test and there's what does that look like serve. Um, it's just giving them a shot of glucagon and then measuring growth hormone over a period of three hours. And if there's just no reserve there, you're kind of wasting your money using one of the peptides. Let's just go to growth hormone mm. and, and replace it, you know, give that a trial. Yeah. What's your thought on the GLP-1 agonist? Love them. It's a, I personally love them. I dislike the inappropriate use of them. And what I mean by inappropriate use is, listen, if you're going to use any of these uh, incretin mimetics, right? So um, GLP-1, GIP, you know, so you got mono, dual, and now there's a, a tripeptide that's coming out. Um, they're going to put you in a catabolic state and you're going to end up skinny fat. 
So while you might reduce your size, you've added fat weight, lost muscle, yeah. and in the long run, that's not good. So if you're going to be on these medications, you definitely have to know how to use them because you're going to, as a doctor, you put something in them, it's great. Yeah, we're going to reduce cardiovascular disease. We're going to reduce weight. We're going to reduce diabetes. But you're also putting somebody in a catabolic state. So you have to be prepared to deal with that. Yeah. So, you know, are they going to be on an androgen concomitantly with that? Are we going to use some uh, uh, muscle peptide or supplement that's going to help offset any muscle wasting that we're going to see, right? Uh, if I'm going to use one of those, I talk a lot about what your daily caloric intake needs to look like for your goal weight, because I don't want to put them in a very a very low calorie diet, seven eight hundred. Uh, uh, calories a day for a month, two, three, four months, right. we're going to be losing muscle. Yeah. And that's not good in the long run. So, well, we're yeah, not with that. They're very, they're great medicines. They just need to be used uh, intelligent. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Organifi. I have an amazing offer for you right now that what they're calling the Sunrise to Sunset Kit, which is everything that I advocate the green, the red, and the gold. Plus, Free 30 count travel packs um, with every purchase. So if you head over to organifycom slash muscle, you're going to get hooked up with 20% off. This is a product that I continue to use every day. And the gold for me, if you're someone who has a sweet tooth, um, which I don't often, but sometimes I do, is a really nice way to end your day, like post dinner snack instead of a high sugary um, dessert. This is a delicious way to. Do something good for yourself and ultimately feel good in the process and help yourself have a better relaxing night and a great sleep. Um, the, the green specifically is something that I never go without. We use it every day, loaded with some incredible organic apt- uh, superfoods and adaptogenic herbs to kick off your day. So head over to Organifi.com slash muscle and take advantage of this incredible offer with their sunrise, the sunset, it. Uh, how do you parse between like modeling someone else that already exists? Because it seems as though what most people are doing right now is they're modeling and parroting rather than reinventing things. Because obviously social media just gives everyone uh, complete visibility and transparency. I can see everything in, in everyone's business for the most part. Right. So I just want to come along and kind of model and parrot what Arnold's doing or Tim Ferriss, whomever. Like, it's, oh, I'm just going to basically regurgitate with these people. But like, how many people do you know have, have now have an equivalent to a five bullet Friday email? It's like endless. Um, now, do you think that's a great idea? Like model what works or is your thought process more along the lines of what you said, like find the best version of the iteration you think works for you and solve that problem in a unique way? Or how do we, how do we bridge those two? Uh, you know, like most things, the answer isn't going to be one or the other. I think like living in black and white, thinking, dichotomous thinking oftentimes becomes very, very dangerous. Um, and we even find science about dieting, like people who avoid this, di- you know, the dichotomy of like, this is either good or bad are actually much more successful on diets because they don't overstress every single decision, right? You don't want to spend your whole life as like a game of Pong where you're bounced one way or another. Uh, so two things that I will say, well, I'll, I'll say three things about this. I love your drill of like dreaming up the biggest thing. And then I think the difficulty sometimes is like we do react to deadlines, right? And we'll fill the space. So if we give ourselves a year to do something, we'll take the full year. So a great forcing function is being like, all right, if this is my five-year plan or this is my 10-year plan, and this is what I want to do. Once you have this big, beautiful dream, then you do the hard part, right? What would this look like if this were easy? 
how would I do that in six months? And it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to do it in six months, but like you're going to learn that you're cutting the fat and you're going to identify again, like what are the barriers? Because some of these things do take time. So it's not being like, how do I do it in a week? You don't want to be unrealistic. You still want to give yourself time, but then you really want to challenge yourself to see like, well, where am I putting unnecessary barriers or where am I actually just like not willing to do the hardest thing possible to allow me to reach this goal in as quick as amount of time possible, which is really what you want to figure out because then that forces you to just put your time, energy, money, whatever it is into the things that really make a big difference. That's another way of looking at like an 80-20 analysis, right? Where everyone's like Pareto principle is like, ah, oh, it allows you to cut the fat. But really what Pareto principle does is it allows you to identify the things that move the needle. And I like to say that instead of Pareto, my spit on that is like, I want to make sure that I'm always moving boulders and not pebbles. And I think a lot of people spend a lot of time and energy kicking dirt and then they wonder why things don't move. And it's like, yeah, because you're just moving pebbles. It was never going to create enough energy to get the type of impact that you want. If there is something that someone is doing, the parroting is out there. I mean, social media is such a great example. Like I'm sure a couple of years ago, no one was walking around in grocery stores doing it. And man, I can't scroll a feed without like everyone is suddenly in a grocery store. Uh, I don't know how I haven't actually seen this happen when I go shopping it live and in person because it seems like everyone is doing this. If someone has a great idea and you think you can do your own variation in a way and you want to test to see if that works, you don't have to reinvent the wheel for everything, right? Like some things are just good ideas. The great part about Five Bullet Friday, and I was there when we came up with that with Tim, is, you know, People want Tim's insights. We are very voyeuristic in nature, but like you couldn't easily find that from Tim. Tim, it shares and creates a ton of content, but his podcast is really uh, following on like the tools, tactics, and habits of all these like very smart, intellectual, world-class performers, right? And his blogs would go really, really deep on something. So if you want to set aside a lot of time to read, and his books were tomes, right? But Tim never offered any short-form content anywhere with specific utility of what he was doing. So it was almost filling this beautiful gap of we know that we are time starved and we know that we are voyeuristic and we know we want to learn. What if we present a new offering of something that is very, very bite-sized because Tim does love long form and he is fantastic at it. So then like if you find yourself that you only do bite-sized content and then you like add another like version of Five Bullet Friday, are you really amplifying or adding something or are you just copying because you see someone else doing it without understanding why they did it, the purpose it served in their ecosystem and why people love it? It's very important to question, even if you don't know, go through the process of being like, why might this be so successful? And when you can ask those questions, be like, okay, if applied to me, why might this be successful? Or how can I you know, take a version of this and do it in a way that fills a similar gap? So there's no problem with doing that if there's a reason to believe it's going to be successful because I think the fallacy is seeing someone do something and then you do it yourself and thinking it's going to have the same impact. One, you're not them. Two, if the hole it was filling, you've already plugged, right? That's like going ahead and being like you have a full tank of gas and you're just going to start pouring gasoline in. More gas on top of a full tank doesn't make your car better or hold more gas, right? It's just spilling it's overfilled so it's like it's making sure that it's going ahead and and serving a purpose and then coming up with new stuff is great as long as you kind of go through the same drill of like why am i doing this what is the purpose why might people love it how is it different what need is it fulfilling for people what problem is it solving and i think these are all the things that you know you have to ask yourself because just ripping off what someone else is doing 
you do run the risk of just being a second rate version of that. And then you're a second rate version and you don't want that to be the case. You don't want to be second rated enemy because then like that's the perception or perspective people develop of you. So there is no need to make sure everything is original as long as people are going to get a ton of value out of it because you're filling some gap that doesn't currently exist. Why did Tim Ferriss and Arnold Schwarzenegger and ultimately men's health, men's fitness, hire Adam Bornstein? Men's health hired me because I was really persistent. I applied for an internship in men's health and came away with their job as their fitness editor. And I think that what I did really well when trying to get the job at men's health was really speak to what I could do differently that wasn't a commodity, right? So at the time I was, I saw that there was a lot of change. One that's not a commodity is like there, I thought there was very few people who had a science background who could write, who also trained people on a background in nutrition. So you have to go through these edit tests and every single edit test, I wanted to be able to show what I could bring to the table, which wasn't just, usually have one of two camps. You're like a fitness person who's trying to learn how to write or this writing person who's trying to like understand fitness, but very few also had the science aspect or the hands-on. So I really tried to go and flex on like, who's going to have all four of these aspects? Am I the most seasoned writer? No. Am I the best trainer in the world? No. Am I the top scientist you'd hire? No. But in terms of someone who has legitimate experience, because I applied to men's health later in my life, mid late twenties, I leaned on that experience and where I could really stand out where I felt like so many things in life are a commodity. And if I wasn't what they're looking for, I could live with that, but I didn't want to go and do exactly what everyone else did. I wanted to show like, if you're going to get me, that fitness and nutrition space will be different. And I wanted to bring ideas. Social media was just starting. So I was bringing an idea of like, well, how do we create content that is designed for Facebook. You got to think this back 2007, 2008, right? Like brands weren't doing that. How do we go out and video was not big then. How do we go ahead and do a lot of video stuff? Because I'd been media trained. So I knew that I could go on and bring video. And then we can take that video and turn that into like short form content, or we can throw ads against, or we can take video content and turn it into written content or written content and turn to video. So it becomes experiential. So you have multiple touch points, right? I helped create a video game. I helped out with books. I just want wanted to tap into everything I had. And I was very persistent and, uh, you know, almost not willing to be egotistical about it where I was like, listen, I know who I am. And if I have to start an intern and work my way up, it's fine. I truly applied for an internship and I had a layover because I was living in Florida at the time on my flight back from Pennsylvania, layover in Chicago. And while I was on layover in Chicago, I got a call from Adam Campbell, who ended up being my boss over there being like, Hey, yeah, no, no internship. We're sorry, but would you like to actually be our like fitness and nutrition editor? And I was like, um, not, okay. not too bad. Tim opportunity came along where I'll never forget. Tim was looking for an editor and I'd met Tim already. And I reached out to Tim to offer to help him find this editor with full intent to help him find this editor. Uh, that was going to, you know, help him manage his blog and then maybe grow his email list and give him a lot of focus on what he wanted to do with the podcast. It was very, very early on. And I'm going through all these people and I'm seeing what they're recommending they would do for Tim and how they grow his audience. And as you can imagine, Tim was very particular. And I, um, this time, had my own business. I had no plans of ever working for anyone again. I'll never forget the, the 
email was so the subject line was something along the lines of like i said i'd never do this again and i sent an email to tim and i was just like i have no desire to work for anyone but i see everyone's ideas that they come up with what they would do with you how they grow these things and i can't help but sit here knowing that i actually have better ideas than all of them and here's what i would do and if you want instead of having me help you hire and find this person do you want me to help you you know, focus on, well, how would we build out an email list? How could we grow your podcast? How could I come in-house and do so many of the things that you are so spectacular at doing, but giving you more bandwidth of doing it? And just, it was, right, it's a show, not tell game. I told him and he grilled me. He asked me many questions like, well, how would you do this? How would you do that? And, And I was not afraid to just be put on the spot. And I can always live with being wrong or having bad answers. I can't live very well with not putting out there or not being afraid to like say what I think will work, even if it's very different. And, you know, to his credit, he gave me a chance and I don't know anyone who is more demanding, but also more willing to try things because Tim is like, Hey, if you say you can do this, I'm going to give you all the resources to make it happen. And if it doesn't happen, I want to know why. And then I want you to fix it moving forward. And he's got really high expectations. And I love that because I have super high expectations for myself with Arnold. I think it was the fact that one, he likes that I'm very, Arnold gravitates towards kind and optimistic people. And I met Arnold by happen chance, right? So like I didn't meet Arnold directly. I lived in Santa Monica for a while. They trained at a gym and there was always this guy who would come up to me like after my workout and ask me questions. He was always for respectful and I always just made time to answer those questions because I know the gym could be an intimidating question, uh, of an intimidating place. What gym did you train at? Uh, Iron. It's on 20th and Broadway. I loved it. It was close enough to my home that if I wanted to, I could even walk to it. And so I would train there and I would just always interact with this guy and always help out when he wanted, yeah, when he had questions. And this continued on for months. And then one day this guy just asked like if I want to go grab lunch with him, asked me to meet at his office. I go to like meet at the office he gives me and you walk in, there's security right there and the corridor is like this mural of Arnold. And I'm like, no, that's weird. Whatever. We're in LA. Go up to the third floor and you the elevator doors open and there's just like movie poster movie poster movie poster and you're like and it's all arnold stuff and then you get down to the end of the hallway and there's a door there with the governor's seal um and i'm like where in the world am i I walk in there and it's you know the guy who i was helping out daniel was arnold's chief of staff and he was just like you had no idea who daniel was and it was just like you're a good person you're kind and then i was willing to help out with arnold without ever expecting anything in return I helped him when he wanted to build a website and get back into fitness and uh, read stuff that he was doing. And it was just like, I, you know, my expectation was I just get to work with Arnold and that's cool. And sometimes things in life are worth doing if they're cool. And, you know, I had a job, I had money, but I was just like, this is cool to be able to help someone who's truly trying to make an impact. And I never asked for anything until like he started offering to do things to help me. And we just started up a working relationship that was, I think, just built on mutual respect and being kind and being optimistic and trying to make a difference in people's lives. And then at some point, you know, you got to make sure that the stuff you do performs or does well, right? At the end of the day, you can be the nicest, kindest, right? Hardest hustling person in the world. But if your stuff doesn't perform, it doesn't perform. And, you know, it, it, if we were to boil it down, right, I could talk about how I got my inroads and how I got my opportunity but the way I've been able to work with all these people for a very long pe- period of time is that it's no different than training for something. It's like you show up and you have to be intensely focused and you have to have probably insanely unrealistic expectations. 
And then you got to deliver on a level that is just even beyond their own. And that's how you impress people. When you go ahead and do things even beyond what people thought was possible, they'll continue to give you more opportunity. You'll earn a lot of trust and they will speak on the behalf, on your behalf. This flaw in our thinking, this separation from the reality of the, the body is not this static input thing that you put in a unit and then you always get back the same unit. It's quite dynamic and it changes consistently over time. Okay. And it applies to absolutely everything, everything. Okay. So let's take fasting as a concept. So fasting has, um, massive benefits. Um, and if we put it in an ancestral context, something I talk about in my upcoming book, uh, actually I think by the time this airs, it should be pre-sailing is that if you look at the ancestral environment, you'll find one thing rings true consistently and everybody will agree on it and it's that nature naturally optimizes okay the rhythms of nature naturally optimize human physiology and to the extent that the modern ecosystem separates us from nature in its most basic form you find pathology okay consistently so if nature's rhythms naturally optimize then a really relevant question is can we inventory the dietary aspects of nature's rhythms. And when you do that, you'll find there's four. There are four aspects to nature's rhythms. They're dietary. One is famine, okay? Like going without food. That's part of nature's rhythms. And if you accept the idea that nature naturally optimizes, nature's rhythms optimize, then it makes sense that there are benefits to famine. You know, there are benefits to famine. Yeah. When not done to excess, like... Now, famine done to excess means you die. Okay, that's not good. But some famine is good. Now, today, we don't call it that. We call it fasting. Okay? There are other components to, dietarily to nature's rhythms. Another one is feasting. Okay? Feasting is a natural component of nature's rhythms. And feasting could mean something as simple as you were starving, you killed something, and you ate until you were stuffed and fell asleep. Okay? That's a natural component. That has benefits. And we can inventory those. I wrote about it in the immunity code. You know, and it isn't even that well studied. I mean, there are, there are things that they have yet to really dive into, like circulating catabolic factor that are a result of feasting and all these amazing things. So, so that so it makes sense if feasting is part of nature's rhythms. There are benefits to that. Another rhythm is abundance. So, abundance is not the same thing as feasting. What you see with abundance is a season, okay? And this is common in nature. So, in nature. There's a season of abundance somewhere. Maybe it's, you know, the harvest came in. Maybe it's the herd came in. You know, somewhere, somehow, there's a season where there's abundance. And so if nature naturally optimizes, there are benefits to a season of abundance. And we can actually inventory what those are. We can say, well, yeah, actually, uh, there's a lot of repair. There's a lot of growth. Um, and depending on when the season happens, testosterone's higher, and we can put more muscle on during that season. Yeah. I mean, this is like a real thing. And finally, there is scarcity scarcity is completely unaccounted for today in today's dietary landscape now scarcity what that means is that you're eating outside your preferences you know i know i found some berries on the way that's great oh and here's some mushrooms great okay not my first pick but i'll do it you know and, and so if nature naturally optimizes scarcity has a very important role and it's, it's completely been missed. It's not even categorized um, yet. Um, I talk about it a lot in the new book. The, the inevitable result of scarcity is dietary diversity. 
that's what it is. And so dietary diversity is an essential aspect that nature's rhythms will force anybody into. And anybody can prove this beyond any doubt, beyond anything any research paper says, go do a survival course and watch what happens. You will engage in exactly that. You can prove it. It's easy. So the role of fasting is that number one, it's an essential aspect of nature's rhythms. And what we see is that it works best in conjunction with the other dietary rhythms in nature. It works best in conjunction with a season of abundance, with a season of scarcity, with a season of feasting. All They all work together. So we have looked at fasting kind of, like you say, through a straw. You know, another analogy I would use is that we've looked at fasting like it's, it's, it's a wheel with one spoke. Like, oh, I just tweaked this spoke there. The wheel's great. Mm. <laughs> but in reality... There's a hundred different spokes on the wheel. And if you tweak one, you change the shape of the wheel. That's that's the truth. So with fasting, what I can say just kind of high level is we want to maximize the benefits of fasting and minimize the downsides. So the first problem we run up against is no one's bothered to really inventory the downside. They don't even acknowledge it exists that there could be a downside because it's only good, Definitely. which is part of the, the binary sort of like binary buffoonery of this age. Like we think this age is really advanced, but really like you'll look back in 10 years and go, oh, it's really just buffoonery gosh. So when we inventory fasting and we look at like, well, what can happen? Like if you're fasting too much, what's, what's the downside of that? So the first downside takes place in the gut and it has to do with the way that the uh, mucin foragers in the gut lining get their food. So those, those principally, those bacteria, principally acromantia, um, also fecal bacteria, prosnitsi, um, their protein source is endogenously secreted, meaning like in your mouth, you're secreting mucus. That mucus is made up of glycoproteins and mucins, and that's their food source, internally secreted protein. Okay. When you take in protein from the diet, you shift the equation completely. Okay. So taking in protein from the diet means that nitrogen is coming into the body from the diet. That's not their food source. Okay. So nature has provided a natural rhythm that balances out the the populations of acromancia and, and keeps them in balance. Now, if you don't have enough acromancia, you have all kinds of problems. Okay. Tons of problems. Um, and we can reverse engineer how to feed them to the body. It's easy. Actually. It's like, what, what feeds this bacteria? Well, um, certain, basically scarcity is what feeds it. So the products of scarcity are things like berries, you know, things like, um, certain types of certain types of roots and fasting fasting feeds it because fasting ceases external nitrogen into the body and lets them do their thing. That's a good thing to a degree. Again, let's insert the time graph. Where on the graph? Where on the graph is, is acromancia good? And the answer is, well, um, kind of in small doses. It, it's absolutely amazing in small doses. You know, I've seen miraculous things from that. But what about if that's all there is? Okay, well, there's a word for that. That's called starvation. And what you see with people who are starved consistently is the gut lining wears out. They blow through the gut lining. Why? Because you have too much acromancia. What's acromancia do? It eats the gut lining. Mm. That's what it does. So too much of that, in other words, you're advantaging this bacteria in a starved state. You're giving them what it needs to proliferate. Well, you get too much of it and it eats the gut lining. Okay. So I have pretty consistently over the last five years had people come to me and go, oh, you know, I yeah, I did the keto thing and then I, and then I did the, the carnivore and then I, I did the fasting and, and ah, my gut's messed up. What did I do? And the answer is, the answer is too much. That's what you did. 
<laughs> you did too much of a good thing. That's what you did. So fasting um, in the short term, let's call it starvation or famine, um, has a lot of benefit. There's no food. Okay, well, that's great because it allows the machinery of growth to turn off. Okay, it allows the machinery of housekeeping to, to kind of really ramp itself up. Okay, and we get all this housekeeping activity. We get rid of a lot of junk and it, it's really, really good. Okay, um, what's been missing from our picture of this, this whole time completely gone, is an understanding of the relationship of famine with foraging together. They've always worked together, always. You cannot find a case where that's not true in nature, okay? So let's translate that into words we understand. What's that mean? It means that you're eating outside your preferences, okay? So there's famine and foraging kind of running on two sides of the track. Like we've treated we've treated fasting like it's, it's a one-sided train track. And the train runs only on this one side. No, it doesn't, never has. So here's famine and foraging together. Like I, I'm really hungry. We haven't eaten in days. Ah, great. Ah, some 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 root here at the swamp. Great. Let's dig it up and eat it. Okay. What do those roots feed? They feed key bacteria that exactly mimic the benefits of fasting. You could draw a checklist and go down the list and go, okay, so here's here are these here are these inulins and these roots. Uh, here are these berries with all these phenols. What do they feed? These less preferential foods, what do they feed? They exactly feed the bacteria, um, species of bifidobacteria, acromantia, that mimic the benefits of fasting. And like, and let's draw a checklist and go down it. What are the benefits of fasting? Well, we see AMPK induction in fasting. Yeah, these bacteria do the same thing. Oh, interesting. Um, we see HDAC uh, inhibition take place. Yeah, these bacteria do the same thing. And you can just keep going down that list. Hmm. So if we draw a more complete picture, it's that fasting starvation has always been uh, co-equals with foraging. Always. Always. All throughout history. Yeah. yeah. It's easy to prove. Um, and so when you reunite those two the way they're supposed to be done, you create an optimal. And what the optimal does is it means you need less of the of of the one. Okay. If when you when you're just doing just pure famine, okay, well yeah, that, that does have benefits. Okay, but where on the time graph are the benefits? Well they're up front, right? Okay, great. Well, what happens if that's all there is? Well, but that's all there is. Eventually you die. But way before you die, what happens? Uh, a bunch of stuff begins to happen, okay? Um, the gut is is one of those things, but a bunch of other things happen. Um, well, what about when you add foraging back into the picture? Well, you get a better equation. And so the approach that I have to fasting is that it's part of nature's rhythms. It's essential. Um, it needs to be in the picture, but it needs to be in the picture along with foraging and if you go a step further and begin to add timing into this whole thing, because we're diurnal creatures and timing makes a big difference on things, um, you begin to parse together an equation that's been completely missing. I mean, completely absent. And what I'm talking about here is we are separated from the reality of what's always been. And when we put these things together, we start moving into the reality of how things have always worked, which is... Typically before a feast, there was foraging and famine, okay? Like you're you're really looking to get some game or some fish. That's, and I don't care what your food preference is, stick you in a survival situation, okay? You are looking for game or fish. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, there's a point where you're like, I'm really tired of eating seeds and berries and roots. I really could get something substantial. Everybody, everybody falls into that, okay? Well, in between waiting for that, there is a period 
some indeterminate period where there is going hungry and then finding, you know, small amounts of what essentially are less preferential foods, foraging foods. And during that period, the bacteria that mimic fasting are being amplified. So nature has provided this natural rhythm where these two things have always worked together to maximize organismal fitness. Okay. And then when you add feasting into that, so now, oh, ah, gosh, uh, you know, we, we, we caught, um, we caught a deer. Fantastic. We can eat it. Let's eat the whole thing. Right. Well, now the, now you've brought in three out of the four of nature's rhythms. Now you've brought in foraging, famine, feasting. The only thing that's left is a season of abundance. Okay. Now we're talking a really accurate picture of how things work. <clears throat> so long-term fasting needs to be in the picture. It just needs to be, um, it just needs to be married back to what it's always been connected to, which is a season of abundance, feasting, uh, foraging, which means eating less pref preferential foods that are, for the most part, demonized today, and and then done in moderate doses. And when you do all that together, you've got a brand new equation that we've completely missed that is superior, that actually is connected back to nature's rhythms. So that's how I would explain it, long-winded. but. When you're looking to, I know you say you're you're approaching the draft right now. When you're looking at bringing on uh, a young talent, what types of things are the deal breakers for you, or what type of? And you can go with that in either direction, right? Like this is someone we're gonna need because they know they're gonna be successful. They just have the right mindset. Is that all about the things you're saying, the environment? And conversely, what are the negative things? You're like, hey, this is a deal breaker. This guy's this guy's not gonna do what we need them to do. Yeah. Well, so the the first part I look for is the environment, but the other sort of three or four categories I think about. The second is kind of like foundational well-being skills, right? So like you can't perform if you're not well. It's like trying to run on a torn ACL. Like it's just not going to happen, right? So you need some basic coping skills, right? Stress management skills, psychological skills, mindset skills, kind of like just, again, core kind of ways that you exist that help you sort of maintain your balance in the world, right? Um, and not slip into something where it's hard to pull out of and keep you sort of well. So that's one factor I think about. The second factor is like these optimized mindsets that I've, I've written a little bit about where it's like a growth and a fixed mindset, stress is enhancing mindset, recovery is an investment mindset, like thinking about those things. So those two pieces, the wellness piece and the optimized mindsets piece are also an important part of this equation in addition to the environment. And then the final piece that the data supports is most important is this idea of self-regulation. And self-regulation broadly is kind of the ability to direct your thinking, feeling, and physiology plus direct your learning. And so when I think about kind of the gold standard, what I'm really thinking about is like how good of a self-regulator are you, right? Like are you aware of who you are? Are you aware of what your values are? Are you aware of how you feel, what you think, how to change it? Do you know how to optimize your learning? Can you pick out when you've made a mistake? Do you, a mistake? Do you know how to refine it? Can you sort of direct yourself essentially, right? Because there's so many hours in the day where like we can't watch you. And so we've got to really trust, believe, know, understand that you can do it, right? You can take some of that on and that you see yourself ultimately as the owner of your own process, right? Like as much as we believe in anyone that we draft, you have to want it. Like, well, we can't want it for you, right? And so I, I look for some of those things. I wouldn't say I have any, like, deal breakers in either direction, really. This is, I think, probably more informed by my own ideas, but I think in the right circumstances, you can help almost anyone achieve their potential. 
I think the real key and maybe the only deal breaker is like, do you actually want to do that? You know, and we've been fortunate in that. And I think this is true of a lot of NBA players. I can't speak for other sports. Like there is a high degree of want it, you know, and how, and do they know what to do? You know, that all varies. Right. But recognizing that this is an outcome that they're after, I think is, is really the key step. And I'm sure this is true in any high performance space, right? If you don't want it, like no one can make it happen. Well, so tell me how you actually identify what, how it, whether or not somebody wants it, because me saying I want it doesn't actually mean that I'm going to do what it's, what it, what it takes to do it. Right. That has to be in my, in my experience, that's something that burns deep inside. That's like, no one's, I always say like, there's not a single person in the world that could have yelled at me enough to make me do what I needed to do in bodybuilding. It had to come out from somewhere just deep inside and it could be from a wound and it could be from something, but there, there's literally nothing that anyone outside of me could have ever done to make me go through what I went through. So how do you begin to identify that? I wish I had the answer to this question because then I would bottle it up and I would sell it like in Vegas or something. And, you know, <laughs> I have a much, I know a much different career trajectory than the one I have now. I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know what the best way to identify that is. What I can say is I try to look for signs that there might be obstacles to that, right? So you look for like almost the barriers, but it's, it's a very, very hard. I mean, there's a reason that this, this stuff is so challenging. So I wish I, I wish I had the answer. I I don't think I do quite. You could that. make a you could make a career of studying just that question. Like you think of like a Tom Brady, right? Yeah. And like no one no one could see what he had inside. But I wonder if you asked him the right questions. Eventually, if you could be like, yeah, this guy's got it. And because, but then there's also the subjective nature of like maybe he doesn't have it physically. Maybe he's got it mentally. Like maybe he's he's the strongest mental person in the world. He's got. It. He's going to do whatever it takes. But his physical body may not hold up, or he may get injured, or he may not physically be capable. You know, there's so much, so many potential factors within that. It'd be a yeah. really interesting uh, area of exploration. Is like, what questions would you have to ask someone who's a very high performer, like a Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, even LeBron, to go, yeah, this is the real deal. Skill set's the real deal, but psychologically, mm-hmm. like, you could see this as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you know, we'd probably need more time than the time they give us to get to the answer. <laughs> Oh, but man, it would be it would be an interesting exercise. So, what what comes to mind? I'm putting you on the spot. What comes to mind? Like, if you had the opportunity to interview you know, the greatest of all time, you, you had Tom, you had you had Jordan, you had Kobe, and you could ask them a few questions. Like, what what, what do you think would be the thing that that would be like? This is it. This is the one thing that I would know. This guy's the real deal. Man, that you are putting me on the spot. I appreciate this exercise. <laughs> I'm sure this is going to be wrong too. I'd, I'd probably first want to understand like what motivates you or what's your why. I know that's kind of like a it's become a more like popularized question now, but I I do think there is like an element to if you can figure out what the why is, it'll at least point you to the idea like whether or not that motivation is sustaining. Right. So if someone's why is like, oh, I just want to make a bunch of money. Right. It's like, okay, well, there's a lot of ways to do that. Like, are we clear that that's going to kind of keep you engaged? Maybe like, I I don't know. Right. And so you, I'd maybe start to tease some of that apart and kind of figure out down that line of questioning, like what is really engaging you? What motivates you? What do you do when things get hard? Uh, What's your typical response to failure? How do you make sense of failure? I think those would be some things I'd ask. Um, you can ask simple questions like, do you hate to lose or love to win more? And that might give you a sense of like what keeps people fueled. What's the uh, answer? Because I don't know. I, 
I don't know that there is a better answer, <laughs> but I think it's telling, right? Like, and you think about, you know, the people who love to win, right? For me, I think about that a little bit more on the concept of like approach motivation, right? So you're engaged, you're trying to go after something that's meaningful for you. And then if you don't get it, you're more inclined to like get up and try again. Whereas if you have the hate to lose, that's maybe a little bit more avoidance motivation, right? So if you lose, what happens? Like, are you going to cascade into this sort of behavior where you ultimately don't try as hard because you're trying to save face or are you going to grip tighter? And that's going to maybe cause you to lose some control and like a paradoxical sense. Like there's a lot of ways to kind of make sense of that, but I would be thinking about really, it's about the constellation of all these things together. It's not about one straight line, but how do all, how does your why map on with your hate to lose, love to win map on with your self-regulatory ability map on with your current skill set like all these things have to come together to get to that really special talent i mean there's a reason we only have whatever like a handful of people across all sports that we would ever consider throwing in the goat conversation well and something's come up for me recently quite often is cognitive dissonance right so like people are like yeah you know i have what it takes i'm capable and, and you and it's like you realize that some people are delusional about what they they're actually capable of and i never kind of thought about that um, so maybe very recently in the last 18 months, um, I was so you're sitting, you listening to people going, I don't think that's accurate. <laughs> what you're telling me, what's coming out of your mouth? I don't think that's accurate. And, and people are just like, yeah, that's, you know, I'm like, ah, interesting. Anyways, I don't, I don't want to go down that path. Is there anyone out there right now interviewing the, like people like Jordan and, and, um, Brady and the, you know, LeBron's and like, there's gotta be someone getting into the psychology. Like if you, if, if not to take the, take the lead, man, we need it. The world needs to understand it. Yeah. Well, you're starting to see some of it. There was a really good book. I think it was written by Jim Gray called Talking to Goats. He's a former broadcaster. And he kind of talks a little bit about his experience and you get a glimpse in there. But then you're starting to see some of this stuff really in like the documentaries coming out, right? Like the free solos of the world, the Formula One, the new tennis series, Breakpoint and Full Swing. Like these things are started last dance. Like all these are starting to give you glimpses but i don't think anyone's been granted access yet to like here's a handful you know there's a series i think it's on apple or hbo one of the two that they um all about kind of elite performance and this these little clips but even then like you really can't get deep enough in that yeah you want a functional mri jordan's brain when <laughs> plays in a game right like like what's happening in that in that cranium how do i reproduce it that's right yeah it's pretty um, special yeah so tell me about self-regulation you kind of you got to give us a high level overview but uh, you saying that's the most important aspect. What specifically is it? How do we do it? How do, how do we know someone's got it? Uh, let's go a little bit deeper on that. So I think about it in two parts. So I'll, I'll kind of go down both paths. The first is the ability to kind of control and direct your thinking, feeling, and physiology. And so that's about skills like mindfulness, breath work, self-talk, imagery, visual, you know, visualization, relaxation. There's a whole host of things that go in there, but it's really the ability to like I don't want to overuse this word, but it's kind of the idea of control your mind, right? Like you're aware of what you need, how to energize yourself, when to calm down, when to ramp up, and you have the skill set to be able to do that at a high level. I think that plays into all sorts of things, right? It plays into things like decision-making, emotional control, being fully present, being engaged, committed, disciplined, like all of that comes down to having that really clear mental model of who you are, what you need, how to get yourself ready, how to prepare, how to stay in it, that I think just without that, you cannot reach the highest level. 
you can be good, but you can't be an all-time great, I don't think, without that. So that's one factor. And then the second element is what they call self-regulated learning, which is really the ability to set a goal, actively monitor your progress, evaluate, and adjust. And what we find is that people who take themselves through this learning loop like this, master skills a bit faster, they work on the hard stuff a little bit more, they train with a little bit different intensity and deliberateness to the way that they operate. And that allows them to essentially compound the growth of that skill over time. And so now you've got the ability to stick in it and do really tough stuff and control your psychology enough to do that, coupled with a real meticulousness in the way that you learn new skills. And then over time, those things come together in the moment of performance for you to really deliver. All of a sudden, you've got a really mastered, deeply ingrained skill with this incredible psychology that I think is, is sort of the sweet spot. And some of the early data that we've got on this shows that like, you know, elite soccer players who are up higher in their self-regulation skills, uh, make more money, make more national team appearances, which as you know, from soccer, like, you know, playing on the national team in soccer, it's like the absolute highest level that you can, can get to unlike other sports where maybe like, you know, basketball, for example, like the NBA might be considered a little bit higher level than FIBA, like soccer that that is the pinnacle like playing for team argentina brazil you like that that is a sign that you're one of the best in the world and this factor separates those guys from the guys who are playing at a level just like the nba right this elite club level sport which is pretty cool so the nine considerations or the nine things that are big big pillars big rocks when it comes to optimization of testosterone naturally or otherwise these are things you must be paying attention to because if any of these is off it doesn't matter how much you're taking, your body isn't effective in utilizing. And these are no particular order. Uh, the first one that I liked to, to really harp on, because I personally think it's the biggest lever, or certainly one of the three biggest levers, is body fat. Uh, if your body fat is elevated, your body is absolutely going to be converting testosterone into estrogen or DHT, and ultimately your estrogen is going to drive up further accumulation of body fat. So it's um, definitely something you want to adhere to. And some people say, hey, Ben, should I take more testosterone to drop body fat? In my experience, that doesn't happen. In my experience, it, it doesn't seem to be correlated that by increasing your testosterone levels, body fat naturally goes down. Because if your body fat is high already, the more testosterone you put in, the more your body's going to convert that testosterone into estrogen, which ultimately drives more fat accumulation. I've seen a lot of guys add more testosterone and actually get fatter because they're not addressing the thing that's causing their body to get fatter, which is the body fat to begin with. So just simply putting more testosterone in, guys, is not the answer. I actually had a guy ask me in the gym yesterday, hey, Ben, what should I be taking to drop body fat? The answer is take your ass to the gym and do, do better workouts or you know, take your ass away from the ice cream containers and the cookies and uh, ultimately lose some body fat, right? And it doesn't have to be complete uh, restriction and sacrifice. You can absolutely still eat and, and consume and do all the things you love and still lose body fat. And you know, a healthy body fat level for men, I would say, is under 15%. And even that, I think, is probably too high I think an ideal ideal circumstances for men is to be to, to be between ten and twelve percent, which to be honest is very low. But I think it's naturally where we're meant to be. But in society today, in this you know quote unquote inclusive society, it's kind of harsh to say to, to men that hey guys, you're supposed to be twelve percent body fat or less. And if you're more than that, the reality is you're fat and your body's not functioning well. The unfortunate reality is fat is not good for you. I don't care. Like you could be me mentally very very healthy. For sure, but fat is not good for you. Fat is causing things in your body that are bad. It's causing inflammation, it's causing estrogen, it's causing um, some insulin resistance. So these are things we just don't want. So we definitely need to think about bringing our body fat down. And again, I, down, and I, I, I've done an in, innumerable number of episodes 
on dropping body fat. So take a look for those episodes. And again, I can dive into that more in the future episodes as well. Dropping your body fat should be your biggest priority because ultimately it's probably your biggest lever period for longevity. If you're fat, you're not, your life is going to be uh, shorter. Anyways, I won't get into too much uh, there on that. Again, take action, guys. Don't waste time. Second one. Uh, I think this one, again, not in any particular order, but at the same time, this may be, this is one of the top three in my opinion as well, is inflammation. Inflammation is at the root of practically all known health conditions. So you may or may not know your your inflammation is often your body's natural defense system when something, whether it be a foreign invader or something stressful happens. So your body's ultimately using this immune system to attack and produce these inflammatory responses. Now that could be a result of excess food. That could be a result of mental stress. That could be a result of toxins. That could be a result of any number of things. Even exercise is inflammatory to the body in an acute way and, and sometimes in a positive way. So we look at things like insulin resistance and poor sleep and, and psychological stress, poor digestion, leaky gut, uh, alcohol, pesticides, pharmaceuticals. All these things are ultimately uh, leading to increased inflammation. Inflammation damages the arteries. It can lead to diabetes, arthritis, IBS, Crohn's disease, so many things. So you got to pay attention to your inflammation. I, I've got tons of research here that I've pulled as a reference in this max testosterone guide or program that I put together to help you ultimately optimize T. Bother sharing the research studies with you, but I've got a long list of them. Hey everybody, just a quick interruption to this podcast from a message from our sponsors. Our sponsor today is Organifi. You guys have heard me talking about Organifi green and red for a long time. I've been drinking it every day. Typically it's been post-workout lately. And sometimes they even bring the red intra-workout to increase my pumps and just give me a little bit of sugar that I need to keep that high performance going. Allows me to recover effectively and just make sure I cover my bases. Organifi greens and reds are dehydrated, high-quality vegetables and superfoods and fruits that ultimately allow you to get access to all the nutrients your body needs to thrive. Organifi juice and adaptogenic blend powders, as well as supplements to support immunity, digestion, and detoxification. Uh, Organifi is 100% organic and offers something for, truly for everyone. Their clinically proven adaptogenic ingredients um, are uh, they taste amazing and incredibly effective. So head over to Organifi.com slash muscle. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 20% off your order. And that's everything store-wide, whether you get the greens, the reds, the gold, the proteins. They've also got some delicious proteins that I suggest you check out as well. But at very least, if you're going to choose one or choose two, Definitely, definitely, definitely grab the greens and the reds. And uh, if you're feeling adventurous, go ahead and grab their gold, which I promise you will not regret. Uh, Organifi.com slash muscle. Back to the show. Uh, third one, and again, these top three, I would say are most important. I think, I think. And, and again, I don't have a measuring stick, but in my experience, these are the first three that I want to address. Third one, sleep. If you're not sleeping well, your inflammation is going to be elevated. Your insulin, your body's going to be insulin resistant. So your insulin resistance is going to be elevated, and your body's, your your hunger, your appetite are all going to be dysregulated. Uh, absolutely, start paying attention to your sleep. And sleep, guys, is I've done numerous episodes on this one as well. But sleep is one of these things that's quite simple. It's not easy, but it's quite simple. Get up in the morning at the same time every day. Get outside as quickly as you can and get natural light in your eyes for 10 to 15 minutes in the morning. Ideally, watching the sun rise walking toward the sunrise, not looking directly at the sunrise. 
at the end of the day, watch the sunset, walk toward the sunset. There's a lot happening at the level of the brain that tells your body to be awake and, and to be asleep when exposed to these type of light cycles. Now, the other thing is after that sunset, you don't want to be consuming any more food. You don't want to be consuming huge amounts of light. So that those things can directly negatively implicate in your sleep as well. I know some people who live in the north in the winter, they're like, hey man, you know, it's like it goes, sun goes down very early. Like I get it. And maybe we do something that I call reverse fasting. Right? Everyone's really big on this intermittent fasting thing right now, which is no no arm, no foul, do as you wish. But in my opinion, it seems to throw off a lot of people's circadian rhythms because food is a big stimulus to our sleep cycles. So if I eat later in the day, my body wants to be more awake or tends to be more awake. Those organ systems that are necessary to digest the food, those things are working while the rest of the body is trying to shut down. And that ends up causing dysregulation in the systems or disharmony in the systems. So I won't spend an enormous amount of time giving you guys a lot on sleep, but rest assured sleep is a big, big lever. Um, the fourth lever I want to throw out to you is stress. You guys know stress is huge, chronically elevated cortisol and adrenaline. So stress is this generic response, this generalized response to any number of things, right? It could be psychological stress, financial stress, physical stress, chemical stress. All these things are stressors. And if your stress is exceeding what your body is capable of adapting to, you will be overly stressed. And stress is normal. Stress is a normal part of life. And we shouldn't ask for maybe less stress. We should train our body to be more capable of adapting to stress. So we think we call it adaptive capacity. There's four different areas that I talk about as far as this adaptive capacity, this physical capacity, metabolic capacity, physiological and psychological capacity. I do have podcasts coming out soon if I haven't already launched them on that specifically. Now, stress is incredible testosterone killer because cortisol and testosterone uh, work at odds with each other. As, as, testosterone, as cortisol is up, testosterone tends to be down. They tend to be competitive for cholesterol. And if, you're, if your cortisol is chronically elevated, your testosterone tends to be low. Environmental estrogens is a really big one, maybe bigger than it's ever been, certainly bigger than it's ever been. These quote-unquote xenoestrogens are foreign chemicals that act like estrogen and bind to the estrogen receptors in the body. They disrupt the endocrine system, which is your hormone system. Uh, ultimately, they can lead to disease and accumulation of fat tissue and infertility in many humans and, and, and animals. So these are very, very toxic compounds that when uh, overconsumed, they accumulate in your tissues, they accumulate in your fat tissue, and your body just holds on to them. They're, they're these toxins that just accumulate in the body. So some things that you may want to consider eliminating are plastics, hard and soft, Teflon pans, cleaning products, scented candles, perfumes, makeups, uh, tap water, uh, grains, grain-fed meats, pesticides like glyphosate and atrazine. These are killing your testosterone. And also, they're making strong men weak and fat and lazy because they're ultimately sapping you of your masculinity. All right, moving along, we're going to talk about movement and intense training. I group those together because the list gets you long. If you're not doing something physically active every day, period, your testosterone is going to tank because your body's not optimizing its insulin sensitivity and building your physical capacity to where you can do things that are actually hard. The reference I always like to use is like, could you sprint hundred meters like hard? And a lot of people would say, well, I could, but you know, I'd probably be really sore afterwards. I wouldn't be able to do it again. Well, you have a low physical capability or could you squat your body weight for 10 reps or two times your body weight for a few reps uh, or bench press or deadlift? Like those are, those are examples of physical capability. And as we age, I always use the reference of the walls closing in around us, right? Regardless of what your age is right now, you're getting older. 
you're older today than you were yesterday. And if you're not intentionally taking diligent action every day to ultimately improve these four areas of resiliency that I just mentioned, the walls are going to continue to close around you. And eventually, you're not going to be able to do the things you should be able to do. It'll be much harder. Everything is going to become more difficult, right? And many men who are over 35 will acknowledge even now. Well, the things you can do now are maybe different than what you could do 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And that's literally this this walls closing around you phenomenon. And that's not an inevitability of aging. It's simply an inevitability if you don't take diligent action while aging. So pay attention, allow your body to get strong. And that means being strong. That means building muscle. That means ultimately improving your aerobic and anaerobic function, improving your mobility and stability and your end range control of all movements. So guys, if you want to improve testosterone, you got to train hard. And listen, Training hard is only one lever, right? Training smart has to always precede training hard. Right? What does training smart mean? It means quality movement based on what my body is currently capable of doing and choosing the right exercises for me based on what, I, what I'm good at and what I'm not good at, intentionally trying to build those things up that maybe I'm not great at. So thinking through those. Moving along, I briefly mentioned insulin resistance as a negative effect of not moving enough. And insulin resistance is an incredibly impactful a side effect of deteriorating health. And if your body is, and this this is also correlated with a term called metabolic flexibility. And if your body becomes metabolically inflexible or ultimately insulin, insulin resistant, your body will become inflamed. Usually they, they go hand in hand, inflammation, insulin resistance. And ultimately your body will tend to hoard body fat. It will tend to use carbohydrates as fuel kind of perpetually and not want it to happen to store body fat. So we have to be aware of in, insulin resistance and how well our body uses insulin insulin and carbohydrate. Now, the single biggest lever against insulin resistance by far is exercise and mitochondrial function. Um, so we need to be doing the types of exercise that ultimately improve insulin signaling and allow the body to lower levels of insulin chronically. Now, my suggestion for 30 days, and I, I make most people who come into my program do 30 days of low-carb dieting, low or no-carb dieting, depending how insulin resistant you are. Uh, guys, if you want to improve your testosterone, 30 days of you know somewhere between ketogenic, carnivore, and low-carb dieting is incredibly impactful for improving your body's insulin signaling, but it doesn't work on its own. You have to also be doing the training that improves your mitochondrial function. If you have poor mitochondrial function, everything else starts to fall down. The mitochondria are these incredibly powerful uh, organelles in the system that uh, seem to impact everything from inflammation to oxidative stress to insulin resistance and nutrient utilization to just daily energy. So if you don't have enough energy to do all the stuff you need to do in a day or want to do in a day, and you require multiple cups of coffee or stimulants or et cetera, your mitochondria are just diminishing. If you wake up in the morning and you have less energy now than you did when you were 21, your mitochondrial mitochondrial function is degrading and you should absolutely be taking action every day. But what does the action look like? It means starting with low intensity cardio, like get some good quality zone two work in and Zone two could be three to six to 10 hours a week, right? Even if it's 10 hours of walking or 10 hours of cycling, like low intensity stuff where you can do it with your mouth closed and be able to walk. The hardest you can work with your mouth closed and be able to talk is ultimately, you know, maybe one of the most impactful things for mitochondrial function and then progressing from there to doing things that are more high intensity in nature, which are, you know, well beyond your VO2 max. You want to bring that VO2 max up as well. So another reason why your testosterone is low is low dopamine. And dopamine is, and testosterone are this two-way street, and, and dopamine is the neurotransmitter of pursuit. So when you uh, set and accomplish goals, when you accumulate things, when you when you move toward things outside of yourself, your brain gets dopamine. That feels good. And dopamine sometimes in our current culture comes from places of um, hedonism, comes from food, 
It comes from social media. It comes from pornography. It comes from drugs. Um, those are all not good places to get dopamine because ultimately they're just right there. They don't require any movement. They don't require any progress. So ultimately you're just getting all these big spurts of dopamine. You don't need to go looking for any, for them anywhere else. When you go out and pursue something, you, you, and the bigger the goal, the longer it's going to take you to get it, the bigger the reward, the bigger the psychological dopamine. So you know people who are super successful and super confident, this ultimately in my mind comes from because they set high, hard goals, things outside of themselves, and maybe four years off in the future, 10 years off in the future. And imagine how crazy and great you feel when you get it. Like, yes, I did it. Rather than sitting my ass on the couch and watching television and saying, oh, I get dopamine immediately, or I turn on the, the TV and I watch pornography. Well, those things are going to give me dopamine immediately, but they're going to prevent me from wanting to go get the dopamine. That discomfort you feel, that absence of pleasure you feel when you sit down is a really good thing because it's supposed to motivate you to get off your ass and go get something outside of yourself, right? Humans are hunters. We're meant to move toward things. If you're not moving toward things because life is curated in such a way that every single thing you want is at the end of your fingertips and your phone, you become ultimately someone who's going to have the absence of dopamine and therefore the absence of testosterone. So guys, set goals for yourself. Do hard shit. If you haven't already read the book, The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter, the premise behind it is we're just too comfortable. Set things, set goals outside of yourself that are incredibly hard for you to do at least once a year. Take a week and go ahead and do them. And you have to train for them. It has to be so hard that you'll train for them all year. It allows us to not diminish as men or as humans. Now, the next two are maybe a little less uh, known but still massively impactful. Low cellular voltage is something that I say to my clients, like, what are you talking about? Well, you know, or at least you will not want to say it, that we're electrical beings. Every cell has a charge. We require this, this cellular potential, this action potential to fire the nervous system, to, for, the, for the cell to ultimately function, to do its, its job. And as we start to lose that cellular voltage, the cell starts to become dysfunctional. Now, I'm not an expert in biophysics, which is ultimately what this is, by any stretch. I've read a couple of books, but I'm far from an expert. And the reality is, I don't know if there's a lot of people on the planet right now that are experts, certainly not in the fitness space, but the concept of maintaining cellular voltage should be one that you pay attention to. And it's not, I mean, sure, it's incredibly complex, but it's not hard to know the action items, we'll say that. So there's certain things that directly impact cellular voltage. What are they? Spending time in nature, movement, food, connection to other humans, connection to nature, potentially even PEMF, pulsed electromagnetic frequencies. These things ultimately allow your body to resonate at its, its natural frequency, which is suggested to be this Schumann frequency, same resonance as the earth. And as your body diverges from Schumann, you start to move toward potential illness or disease. Now, it's my understanding that the, the optimal charge for the cells in the human body is negative 70 millivolts. And as you start to lose that negative charge, meaning you go negative 50, negative 40, negative 30, you start to lose the ability to optimize the cellular function. So how do we then bring that back? Well, uh, if you remember way back at a podcast with a gentleman by the name of Gerald Pollack, Dr. Gerald Pollack, he's a genius when it comes to cellular voltage and, and how water actually impacts uh, cellular voltage, this so-called structured water or easy water exclusion zone water allows the body to maintain this negative charge. And if you want to go back and listen to that podcast I did with Dr. Pollock, it's incredibly impactful, incredibly useful. It teaches us about how this easy water excludes the negatively charged electrons. They maintain a 
a um, sheath, we'll say, around the outside of the cell or a perimeter around the outside of a cell of negatively charged electrons that maintain that cell's charge. And if, those, if that structured water starts to diminish, you start to lose this charge, that cell starts to become dysfunctional and you get misful of the proteins and things like cancer can accumulate. Um, so pay attention to cellular voltage is important. So what are some action items immediately? Get out in the sun every day. We are electrical beings that need the sun to charge us. Imagine you're a battery. The, char the sun in, in nature charge you up. Movement charges you up. When my kids get sick, do you know what the first thing I do with them? I say, hey kids, go take this pill. No, never. What do I say? Let's go outside and go for a walk. Let's go to the beach. Let's lay on the grass, right? Let's connect to nature. You know what they do? Within hours, they're feeling better. They're literally gathering electrons from the earth. Maybe it's some um, sounds, um, maybe it's the light spectrums, right? Maybe infrared light is another way to think about voltage. All right, and the final one, before I get into some frequently asked questions, is vitamin and mineral deficiencies. These are very common in people. And, and while these are seemingly a small lever, they could be a significant one. If you're lacking magnesium, if you're lacking zinc, particularly minerals, if you're lacking B, B vitamins, vitamin D, all these are incredibly highly correlated with testosterone. So if you're missing these, your testosterone will naturally be low. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.